Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malamud. And I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. For much of the modern era, a certain portion of Orthodox Jews, especially those in the Haredi community, viewed the idea of professional care of mental health problems, or the very existence of those problems, with suspicion. The reasons for this antipathy are complex, beginning with the fact that the community looked to its own rabbis for wisdom, rather than the new priesthood of psychiatrists and psychotherapists. There was also outright distrust of the secular founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, as well as an aversion to speaking about private emotional issues to outsiders, often with the fear that any rumors of mental health issues in a particular family might ruin the marital prospects of their children. Even having a relative who is afflicted might make one considered a less desirable match. But in recent years, the narrative has been changing, as more and more Orthodox Jews have sought psychological help. The stigma around mental health has not completely disappeared, but it has been challenged, And increasingly, psychologically aware rabbis are normalizing the idea that treatment is an important option for those who are suffering. I'm Elliot Malamud, and this is Crossing the Sea, my monthly podcast about Judaism and mental health. In this episode, I talk with Rabbi Yoni Rosenzweig, who's a rabbi of the Netzach Menashe community in Beit Shemesh, Israel, and has written a number of books about the nexus between mental health and Jewish law. Rabbi Rosenzweig spoke frankly with me about a number of issues, including the kinds of questions he has asked as a rabbi that border on the psychotherapeutic, as his job increasingly involves dealing with mental health issues in his community. I began by asking him about recent data that indicates that young people are more inclined to seek out help for mental health issues. So, in a report released by the American Psychiatric Association in October of 2019, which was entitled Stress in America, Generation Z, there were some interesting results. It turns out that members of Gen Z, those people born in the late 90s through 2010, were more likely to have received treatment or gone to therapy, 37%, compared to millennials at 35%, Gen Xers, 26%, and even lower were baby boomers at 22%. So, Yoni, I'm wondering if you see this reflected in your own daily professional rabbinic experience, are you receiving more queries from people about mental health? I should start off by saying that my involvement in the mental health world is relatively recent. So we're talking about the last, let's say, two, three years, all right? And therefore, my ability to compare is limited. However, I would say that, yes, that there is a, a growing awareness. I would say actually more in the U.S. than here in Israel, but but yes, a growing awareness amongst people, the different mental health conditions that are out there that they may have. And as a result of that, more questions. And that, that is meaning to say that there is a growing amount of questions might sound alarming to people, 
I'm not sure that it's a bad thing. In other words, it may simply be that people are more aware that certain issues are conditions that need care and that need, you know, that they can get care for. Do you think that younger people are sort of less hesitant than older people were about receiving advice and help for their issues? And if so, you know, does that change your job in a way? So when you think about what a rabbi does, there's all sorts of things that could be involved from, you know, ritual organization to answering legal questions. But here we're talking about a whole other kind of swath where people are coming to you for personal advice that sort of borders on the therapeutic. And if it's true that younger people are less hesitant to both go to therapy and perhaps ask about therapeutic questions, does that mean that your job is kind of evolving is what I, I see. I agree with you 100% about younger people being more open and more aware about their other issues. It's becoming more acceptable to talk about it, and that's a good thing. I think in that sense, the religious community is actually still defined. Specifically, if you go to the more ultra-Orthodox, where you know we still have actually a significant, I would say, they are maybe the opposite. The younger people are more hesitant to speak about it because the questions of, of getting shidduch, being able to find uh, someone to marry, et cetera, et cetera. And so actually it may be more hidden. But in terms of my position, actually I want to be very clear. It's a, it's a really good question, important question. Rabbis, and I don't think it matters how much this field evolves, need to know their place and need to know their boundaries. So in other words, it's very important that I not conflate my position as like a support being for people in the community with real therapy and real help. If someone needs real therapy, I need to turn them in that direction and make sure that they get it. If they want to come to me and, and you know, like kind of like tell me what's on their mind and what what's aching them and what's bothering them and why they're hurting, I'm very happy to be there, listen to that and offer support. But that can never be instead of, you know, real, real mental health support. I'm really interested in what you're saying here, and it seems like a crucial point. And I would love if you could clarify for me where you see that line, right? That line between, let's call it giving pastoral counseling and crossing over into the territory of actual professional therapeutic work. Right. So uh, I'm not sure that I can define it exactly. I'll try. I'll try. I can give examples. That's easy, but I'll try to also define the line. So... I would say the definition would be between using therapeutic tools and trying to solve someone's problem and listening and giving, you know, I would say like what I would call good advice in a, in a, in a tricky family or communal or personal situation, right? So lots of us, not just rabbis, you know, give advice. It's just that rabbis sometimes are perceived as people who are wise and therefore that wisdom, people want to partake of that wisdom. So they come to the rabbi and they want, to, to understand what whether that wisdom can help them in, in an unfolding situation in their life. But as an example, right, someone the other day asked me, you know, what my position is on electroshock therapy. So I answered them, I have no position on electroshock therapy. In other words, even though I deal with mental health, and maybe that is sometimes used in certain situations, you know, I have absolutely no position on the issue because I haven't read and I'm not a professional. So therefore, when it comes to using the tools and the professional kind of like uh, therapeutic methods that mental health professionals use, unless you're licensed to do that, unless you know what you're doing, I say stay away. You want to give good advice to the person in a specific situation? I think good advice is a nice thing to give, and you can do that. So do you, do you think that sometimes there are rabbis who 
fancy themselves as therapeutically skilled and then they wade into these complex emotional situations that are perhaps beyond their their purview? Yes. Unfortunately, I'm quite certain of that so. Uh-huh. Let's take it the other way. Do you think actually that it should be kind of part of rabbinic training to actually get therapeutic training, ther- like training and doing therapy? Should that be just as mar- part, much a part of a rabbinic job, say, as, you know, discussing kashrut? Or do you think that it's better to have the two disciplines clearly distinguished? That's a tough question to answer. I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer it as precisely as I can. I would say that rabbis don't have to be mental health professionals. So I don't think that each rabbi needs to receive like a full degree or, or something along those lines. But people do approach rabbis often. And they approach them with issues that definitely not completely are mental health issues. So therefore, what a rabbi does need, I think, is basic understanding of the field. They don't have to understand how to work the field. They just have to understand things about the field. That you have many rabbis today, a lot of them, who understand physical health. They understand it because they've gone through it or because they've heard people talk about it. Right. Like I don't, I'm not a doctor, but even though I'm not a doctor, right? If you talk to me about cancer, right? I'll know what chemotherapy is and I'll understand what someone who is like, I'll understand like what the course more or less for someone who is suffering from cancer is going to be. Right. But if I said to a rabbi depression, I'm betting that nine times out of 10 today, he'll have no idea, not what the issue is. Maybe he's heard the term depression, but what the course is. What, what happens now? What does the person do? What are they, what are they in for in the next two, three, four, five months? They have no idea, right? So therefore, when someone comes to them with a question or was it with a career or even one advice or whatever it is, you have to have a basic understanding of the world that that is because a lot of people are going to ask you those questions and you need to understand the basics of what's going on. Where do you think they should get that kind of training or that kind of education or knowledge? I'm first of all offering something along those lines of the course. I've created a, a center called Magwe Nefesh, which is meant to train rabbis in the areas of halata and mental health. And part of that training is to understand that world. So I'm trying to fill in that gap. But if a rabbi was unable or or something willing to come to the course that I'm organizing, they can do so in other ways. You know, take a few courses here and there. They can they can uh, learn. You can sit as I did, by the way, with mental health professionals and learn from them. But I really think, if you ask me, my vision for the future is that kolalim in yeshivas where rabbinical students are learning in order to gain their other rabbinic ordination should have built in, you know, to the, to the degree, to the, to the, to the smicha, to the ordination, to have built in courses about mental health so that there's a basic understanding of that. Before I leave this topic, just to turn it slightly, do you think that rabbis themselves should be in therapy either before or during their rabbinate? Uh, definitely the answer is yes, 100%. Hey, they do need to, but I'll, I'll explain why for two reasons. Number one, you know, there's a saying that says, you know, it's lonely at the top, right? That's true in any profession, not just for rabbis, but also rabbis. We, we don't have a lot of friends, meaning a lot of, a lot of times we interact not with our peers, but with our congregants who look up to us. And that can cause a lot of, I would say, mental imbalance for a person. And therefore, just from that perspective, it's important to be balanced. Make sure that your life is, is okay. You know, you don't just have your wife to talk to, even though your wife is, is important, but not just your wife. And uh, that's number one. Number two is that halacha, maybe we'll get to this later, but there is something people always say to me, 
Don't you feel like there's something very OCD about halakha? And the answer is the Jewish law does definitely, to some extent, attract people who are interested in a specific kind of thinking or a specific kind of uh, behavior. And rabbis can be very prone to that as well. So therefore, if you're if you're living Torah and teaching Torah, you know, and doing all those things, it may very well be that you also need a little bit of help to balance your life, you know, in terms of the Torah that you lit, that you learn and teach with other things that should be in your life and are not good enough. It sounds like it might go further than that. It sounds like you're implying, I think probably correctly, that some rabbis are at risk, that there's a potential for burnout. I haven't seen studies on Jews, but there was a study on Protestant clergy in the United States, and that the burnout possibility is is huge in terms of both physical problems that develop stress-related diseases and also just psychological burnout. And one of the things they talk about a lot is lack of gratitude, just eroding their sense of self. So it sounds to me like therapy for people would be pretty vital in helping them to, to as you say, to balance off their emotions. Right. Right. I think in order to fight the stigma and to do my part, you know, I will also uh, say over here, I personally throughout my life have been to three different therapists, you know, and I think that it's important, you know, to go and to work out your issues, see what's, you know, what's happening because yeah, absolutely. You know, you can definitely burn out. You can definitely, you know, we hear once in a while stories and I don't want to generalize now, but we hear stories once in a while about rabbis who unfortunately are caught doing X or Y or Z very inappropriate things. And I guess our assumption is, when we hear those stories, we say, you know, rabbis are human beings too. They have emotions, they have feelings, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they follow sometimes their darkest feelings on that. You know, they can't control their inhibitions. We just assume, whether it's, what's the statement there? The statement is, they're, they're an anomaly. Well, those rabbis, you know, they're an anomaly. We don't pause to consider that perhaps it didn't start out that way. They weren't just like born with an evil inclination. Perhaps there was a burnout. Perhaps there was something else. Perhaps there was a process that led the person to a certain situation where, yeah, eventually it, it ended up with something quite terrible, unfortunately. But it was a process and a mental process that was a result of the exact thing that we're talking about here. Do you feel that going to therapy made you a better rabbi? I never thought about that until you asked. Let's put it up. So I always thought that therapy would help me be a better person, you know? And, and right. I guess that, you know, being a better person automatically would make me be a better rabbi. But I, I never thought about therapy as helping me with my rabbinics, but I assume so. You know, now that you've asked the question and we've been pondering it, I assume that once again, achieving that level of, intro, of introspection would help me achieve a certain balance, you know, and the fusion of different parts of my own personality, which would in turn make me a better rabbi. So I know you've done a lot of work, a lot of research, and you've actually written a book on the interface between Jewish law and mental health. And I read a statement by you that struck me a great deal, and I wanted to talk to you about it. You said that, quote, when the rabbis of the Talmud described matters pertaining to health, they were describing phenomena of which they were aware. And the things that they describe are things that were clear to them as being illnesses. We can also understand that the things we have in our classical sources are usually the more extreme cases because those were very clearly identifiable. It's clear that the kind of things they talk about are nearer to psychosis than neurosis, which I thought was a very apt description. But it, I also found it troubling and problematic, you know, when I thought about the implications of it. Because in a way, what you're saying, in a very polite way, is what did ancient rabbis really understand in its subtler forms, right, about mental illness? 
you know, obviously people are categorized as mentally ill, but these subtle forms of mental affliction seem somewhat lacking in these discussions. So I guess what I want to ask you is, if so, how much can we really turn to older Jewish sources, and should we even turn to those sources, to navigate a current Jewish perspective on mental health? Right, that's a great question. I'll be very, very honest. You know, I think that when I started off my journey of looking into the world of Jewish law and mental health, I thought I would find much more than I did. You know, and I, I found I found a decent amount, but not nearly enough, you know, to compare to the magnitude of the issue, you know, at hand. So the rabbis were obviously very sensitive to two things, right? They were sensitive, as I as you quote from the quote that you said, to the very clear manifestations of poor mental health. And they were also on a spiritual, not so much mental, but on a spiritual level. They were, of course, devoted to making people better people, and they definitely saw when people were acting out, but they didn't attribute that to poor mental health. Sometimes they attributed it simply for poor spiritual health. In other words, why is this person acting out in a way that isn't polite or proper? He has a problem with his gomidos. He has a problem with his characteristics, with his good upbringing, right? It's not a, it's not a mental issue. There's something else going on, something that the mashiach and the yeshiva, someone who's in charge of, like, you know, like a rabbi could fix this. It's something that has to do, it's character development rather than a mental issue. So the rabbis did talk about some of these things, but they used a totally different language than we spoke about. And you're absolutely right. They would never have thought about things that we think about today, right? So to give a very current example, right? 150 years ago, even, if someone was in a, in a yeshiva, in a house of learning, right? And he was saying, right, part of the davening, part of the prayer. And he was saying it, once and twice and three times and four times and five times. And someone asked him, why are you doing that? And he would say, I want to get the kavanah just right. I want to make sure that I have the right purpose, the right the thoughts in mind. You know, I think 150 years ago, the rabbi would say, wow, you're such a pious person. You're such a tzaddik. You're, you're not going to go eat with the other boys breakfast until you get your prayer just right. That's amazing. Wow, you're such a, you're a pious person. And today we'd say, he's suffering. He's suffering. He has OCD. That boy is suffering so much. I want to just help him so that he can stop saying the prayer and he can move on with his life, move on with his day, right? The rabbis of old would, would not have necessarily understood that. They, not that they didn't recognize some obsessive behavior. They, they could recognize that, but they didn't pinpoint it, you know, in all its manifestations. That's for sure. So coming to your second, second part of your question, right? Therefore, how much can we really turn to those sources? And the answer is that we can only turn to them as a general, shall we say, an arrow that guides us in a certain direction. Right? So I can take terms and principles that they spoke about, but certainly all the current manifestations that they weren't aware of, we're going to have to come up with our own kind of like responses to that. Right? So a large part of my book, of preparing my book, was bring the definitions, the the halachic, the legal definitions of someone who is unwell, someone who is sick, who is ill, you know, who has a disorder. To what extent will I consider that to be very problematic, not so problematic, you know, et cetera. And, and yes, I do use the language or try to I try to couch it in the language that the rabbis spoke, but I'm very much aware that there's a significant gap, you know, and that to some extent we have to we have to invent the wheel on some level. 
So it, it sounds actually like you're saying two distinct things, that the rabbis interpreted what we would call psychic phenomena as spiritual phenomena, probably because they didn't have the, the grammar, the lexicon, to discuss these things. But we do now. We have a psychological language to sort of talk about these things. But that you and your own work are trying to, in a way, do the best possible merger, which is to translate the language of ancient sources into concepts that would be more au courant in current psychological parlance. Would that be, would that be correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I'd like to move to just some practical issues that you may come across as a rabbi in the psychological realm and just to ask you about a few of these. You know, some months ago, sometime in 2021, I interviewed David Greenberg, who wrote a book with Eliezer Witsum about certain kinds of psychological issues that pertain in the ultra-Orthodox community. And in one of the things they talk about in their book, which I think is called Sanity and Sanctity, unless it's Sanctity and Sanity, I, I can't remember now, is among Bali Chuva, right? A certain particular incidence of mental health issues. People have been brought up in a secular lifestyle and then turned to religious observance. I'm wondering if you see that in your work, if you see particular kinds of mental health issues among returnees to religion, and what might they be, and how might they be different from sort of other people you might encounter? Right. So I already mentioned that the classic one is OCD. Sensitive propulsive disorder is something which could very much affect and afflict not just individuals who grew up within the religious community, but even more so what you're talking about, returnees, because the first thing that we teach people, more or less, when they come back to religion is the behavioral aspects of those things. And as we well know, Jewish law is very legalistic and full of minutia. So that couldn't cause someone to become very obsessive about the things that they're doing if it's they, you know, it's called scrupulosity. You know, if it's uh, washing hands constantly or saying certain prayers, it's women going to immerse in the mikvah when they are after they've finished menstruating. That could cause all kinds of trouble in terms of their worry, their worry about whether they did it properly or they didn't do it properly. It has to do with the dietary laws. I get questions. If you will believe about dietary laws. They're obviously okay, but for the person, you know, it's a worry. So that's OCD. And that, leads into another sort of thing, which people have a lot of, you know, which is anxiety. And anxiety also in the keeping the laws, right? And that kind of like constant stress and constant pressure to be okay with, with Hashem, with God, can lead to significant anxiety in the part of the person. And, and that in turn can also lead to a development of depression. I also wanted to ask you, you know, in previous years, in previous decades, halakha, and at a certain point, the DSM, although that changed, regarded being gay as a sign of mental illness. And I wanted to ask you if this was done specifically in the case of halakha to actually alleviate the guilt of a LGBT person by, quote, deeming them not in their right mind and therefore not culpable for the, the sin as in the eyes of halakha. But that is also, to me, troublesome because it seems like a very paternalistic attitude. And do you think that attitude, you know, can that still be maintained at this point? Like, in other words, if we assume that that person is not mentally ill and that they're actually, with volition, living the life they're living, I think we have to ask a new question now, which is how should halakha now think about LGBTQ individuals who wish to be sexually active and even marry? Okay, I have to divide this into a few parts. So, 
Part number one, let me just start off by saying many times people ask me, you know, whether in my book and in my work, I, I, I talk about LGBTs. And my answer is, in terms of the gay community, I don't talk about that because it's not in the DSM-5. You know, it hasn't been in the DSM for a while already. And therefore, I don't do, just like I said before about the boundaries, I don't do classification. You know, so if the, the APA wants to classify one way or another, they can do so. I'm going to go with the DSM-5, whatever they say. You know, therefore, for me, it's not necessarily a mental health-related question. So that's just for the for the record, yeah? That's number one. Number two, I agree. It's volitional, meaning I think Rabbi Norman Lamb, I think, you know, in, in his uh, in a seminal essay, talks about onus, talks about that category as being relevant to the gay community. I just say I think it's a bit paternalistic to claim that. You know, and I don't think that it really jives with what they themselves uh, are feeling or going through. At the end of the day, it's a, it's a, it's a totally a volitional act on their part. They can choose to live one way or another, but I don't think we should treat it that way. And the Allah doesn't seem to treat it that way. The Allah seems to believe that, right? I mean, once again, I'm taking you like the, the simple statement of the Torah that says, you know, that such an act is, is punishable by death, right? It, obviously, you wouldn't say that if you thought that it wasn't volitional. You know, but putting aside whatever the Torah says just about that issue, but whether it's evil this or not. So I don't think we should be paternalistic towards that community. I think we should be completely honest with them as they are honest with us and say, look, obviously you're doing whatever you're doing out of your own free will, you know, and that's that. That's part two. Part three, what has to do with your specific question. So how do we relate to the LGBT community as a result? I would just say that when a person comes to me, and asks me this question, they gave us a comes to me. The first thing I say to them is, I, I have the utmost respect for you for coming to me, because it is not easy for a gay person to walk up to a rabbi and ask him a question, anywhere. That has to do with his life as a gay individual. And that is, to me, just amazing that they even came up to me and asked me. And I, the second thing I say to them is that I'm there for them, and I'm happy to help them in any way that I can. And to be clear, when I say in any way that I can, what I mean is this. And your listeners, I'm sure, have different opinions on this. I'll say what I what I understand, at least. To be clear, I'm not saying this is a, a therapeutic perspective or anything. I'm saying this is my understanding from conversations that I've had with gay individuals within the religious community. This is my the best understanding that I have. The thing that we need to care for the most is that we don't doom a gay individual to a life of loneliness. I'll say it differently. If all we have to offer them is a life of loneliness, then it's better to be honest about that and not to promise them false hope. It's better to say to a gay person, I have nothing to offer you in orthodoxy. You should go look elsewhere because all you'll find here is solitude and pain and sorrow and distress. And just be honest about it and say that that's what there is here. Because if you don't think that, you think that there is something else that you have to create that something else. Not enough to just hope, pie in the sky, kind of hope that there's going to be something else. Now, in my best understanding, I'm not saying that the gay people don't want to engage in gay sexual relations. I'm sure they do. But that, I don't think, is the main issue. Meaning, I think a, great, a greater issue is if they're able to create a family together, able to live together, able maybe to raise children together, able to be in a religious community together, Meaning those things, right? As a rabbi, I personally feel much more of an inclination to try and find solutions for those things than I do for the prohibition of gay sex 
Because I don't think that that's the main issue. Even though it is an issue. But it's not the main issue. The main issue is to give them a life in the Orthodox community that, that can be meaningful for them. And, and sex is, of course, a meaningful aspect of a person's personality and psyche, but it's not, to me, the most uh, salient issue here. The most significant issue is the one that you raised, of family and all that stuff. So, to sum up, I, and without going into specific uh, details, because I think every case is different, but I am committed right, to speak to people. I am committed to try and find them a way to, to have a meaningful and full life in the Orthodox community, because otherwise, I really should just be honest with them and tell them that it's not for them. You know, but that's what I'm committed to. I'm not committed to necessarily other issues, but this, in terms of this, this to me is the issue for the gay community, and something that we as rabbis in the religious community need to take upon ourselves to make them understand that they have a place that they should feel comfortable to be within the community, to come to show the part. That's the most important thing. I'm actually particularly struck by your invocation. It's quite poignant of isolation and solitude and loneliness. And when I think about those words, it strikes me not just on the particular topic we were talking about, but just in general, a communal attitude towards mentally afflicted people. And I've often found that there's a little bit of a kind of split between sort of idealistic ideas and how people actually treat those people in reality, you know, I was in a situation, I would say pre-COVID, where I walked into a shul and there was somebody who was obviously mentally disturbed there and it was making quite a bit of noise. And what struck me in that situation was, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about compassion, but like, don't interrupt my davening, right? So I, I, I'm, I, I just wonder, like, how do you think we can com- improve our communal outlook towards people like that? I, you know, and I'm thinking specifically about institutions like synagogue and like other communal spaces. You're so right. What you just said now is one of the most important points that I often make. I'll just give a quick example of what you said, just because I mean, like the the, the <laughs> I once heard this. I think from Rabbi Sherlow is the one who I think I once heard this on the radio from him. But he said, "Everyone loves this story." About is it Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, where the Baal Shem Tov, you know, the boy walks into the synagogue, he can't dab it, he can't pray, so he has a flute or he whistles or whatever it is, you know, and everybody loves that story and they say, oh, you see, like he doesn't care whether he dabins or not. What matters is the the heart and the intent, right? But if someone walked in in the middle of your nihila and started playing a flute or whistling, you'd you'd shush him, then you'd kick him out of show. Right? Exactly. It's like yeah. people love the story, they love the idea, but it's like if you're trying to do it in their in their space, right? So that's why I tell people if if I walk into a room, right, and I say, How many people here are care and want to, you know, uh, improve people's mental health? Everybody will say yes. And then I'll say, Okay, but do you realize that you have to sacrifice for that as a community? Because I know you feel that way. But do you also understand the sacrifice that's involved from you? That if someone with dementia comes to show and he's acting out, you know, so we have research that tells us that what they call brain reserve or cognitive reserve, that a person has a certain reserve, you know, that he's able to kind of slow the progression. You can't stop it, but slow the progression of the dementia. If he stays within his community, within his routine, you know, that there's a certain strength that he retains. Well, if you put him in an institution, Right, he'll 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 deteriorate much quicker, you know. So, are you willing to bear the brunt 
in a sense of having someone with dementia in your show. Are you willing for someone, for a kid with ADHD who can't stand the long dominant? You know, he has to come in order for him to, to be able to bear being in show, certainly during when we're showing him Kipper, you want to bring all the kids, you know, et cetera. So he'll bring a spinner, you know, a little toy, you know, he'll bring a fidget cube, you know, or something else. Are you willing to put up with kids who have like little toys in show and they're playing around? Or do you want your show pristine and pure, only davening, only, only sidurim, you know, only prayer books, you know, et cetera? What are you willing to put up with? What are you willing to do? You know, so you have to sacrifice. That's what we need to tell you. It's not just about caring. I have a, I have a merciful heart. Of course you have a merciful heart. Oral Hashem. I'm Israel Rahmanim, Rahmanim. We learn from Abraham Avinu. We're merciful people. But we need to understand that that mercy comes at a price. There's a price to pay. Are we willing to pay it? I'll give you one more example. It actually came up just this week. Someone called me. A yeshiva guy called me to ask me. He said he has a certain mental disorder. Wanted to know if he has to disclose that to someone that he's dating, that he wants to date. So I said to him, look, first of all, of course you have to disclose it, you know, but when? The question is when. So disclose, for sure you have to disclose. But the question is when you have to disclose it. He said, look, a lot of people get scared when you tell them you have a psychiatric condition or they're taking a psychiatric. You don't have to disclose that piece. People don't disclose a lot of things on the first day. So you can definitely go for one, two, three dates. But then... If things are going well and progressing in the right direction, then you should, of course, tell her. And that way, hopefully, she'll have seen you for who you are, you know, for your, you'll see your personality, your humor, that you can, that you're balanced, that you're able to, you know, be a productive member of society. It will be so scared when she hears about the psychiatric condition. But then the question is this, right? Everyone, when they hear that, a lot of times they say, like, yes. And now I say, now you're the boy, now you're the girl. Are you willing? to be the one that they withhold the information from. Are you willing to be the person who goes on the date with a guy and then finds out later on that he had something? Or are you going to get mad when that happens to you and say, I was deceived? Because if you say that, then what you're saying is you're perpetuating the stigma. You're basically saying, well, yes, then the, the, the individual and the disorder, they're the same thing. They're, they're one of the same. So therefore, what are we doing here? Meaning, being understanding and being merciful, being Rahmanim, that everybody wants to do that. When it comes to the price that we need to pay, and dating someone going on two, three dates, not such a big price to pay. I think it's it's doable. You know, you're not hopefully you're not getting hurt. No one's harming you, no one's doing it's just, you know, withholding information for a little bit. Are you willing to put up with that so that people who have mental challenges get a fair shot at building a family? at, you know, being part of our communities, right? So all these things, so I completely agree with the question. You absolutely hit it on the head there. It's not just about writing nice posts on Facebook. This will, this will, will require us to make real sacrifices if we want those people to be part of our community. Are we willing to pay the price? Rabbi Rosenzweig's question is a challenge. Will members of Orthodox communities be willing to pay the price of some discomfort and uncertainty in their ritual or dating lives in order to help facilitate a truly sensitive outlook towards those with anxiety, depression, and other mental health concerns? Will the potential shame that haunts individuals and even whole families for being associated with mental illness slowly diminish as knowledge of mental anguish and its potential alleviation becomes more mainstream, even in more isolated, ultra-Orthodox communities. 
in an era where there's been a trend towards more culturally sensitive medicine, clergy who can understand the nuances and idiosyncrasies of their particular religious society can play a crucial role in promoting professional solutions to mental ailments in the same way that treatment for physical problems has become universal. Dr. Michael Bunzel, who established the Department of Psychiatry at Mayanea Yeshua Medical Center in the city of B'nai Brak in Israel in 2003, believes that the comfort level with treatment, even in right-wing Orthodox circles, is growing. As he notes, it's become clear that despair and the need for help outweigh any shame or stigma that remains. I'm Elia Malamed, and this has been Crossing the Sea. To find previous episodes of this series, as well as other podcasts and online offerings, just subscribe for free to Living Jewishly at www.livingjewishly.org, where you'll see details of our wonderful course about Judaism in the School of Living Jewishly. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Stay safe and take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.